Hello, and welcome to the Frank and Fearless podcast by And Health, hosted by none other than the founder, CEO, and managing director of And Health, Bronwyn LeGrice. This show will be inviting brilliant individuals who are pushing the boundaries of science, health, and innovation to join us for a chat as we learn more about their inspiring journeys, both personal and professional. In the spirit of reconciliation, And Health acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. During this first episode recorded in August 2023, Bronwyn had the pleasure of interviewing Victoria's lead scientist, Dr. Amanda Caples, in front of a live audience at the Victorian Connected Health Innovation and Commercialisation Centre, also known as CHIC. CHIC is supported and brought to you by the Victorian Government Department of Jobs, Skills, Industry and Regions and the Australian MedTech Manufacturing Centre as a connection and collaboration space for the Victorian Connected Health community. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Let's begin. It's now my absolute delight to welcome you to two things. One is the first ever episode of And Health's Frank and Fearless series. So we've been playing with the Frank and Fearless idea on and off, International Women's Day events, all sorts of things. And we finally decided to make this a, a series that we, we deliver here, but also take nationally and potentially internationally. And what we're really trying to do is look for all those superheroes of our space that often don't get profiled as individuals in their own right. And I can't think of anyone I'd like more to have as our first inaugural Frank and Fearless speaker. I was about to say victim, but I won't do that, <laughs> which is Dr. Amanda Capel. So um, Amanda is Victoria's lead scientist, so she aligns and connects Victoria's science, technology, and innovation capability with industry and government economic development activities. She's a founding non-executive director of Breakthrough Victoria, the $2 billion commitment to invest across biotechnology, agri-food, clean economy, advanced manufacturing, and digital sectors in Victoria and is chair of the mRNA Victoria Scientific Advisory Group for the mRNA Innovation Ecosystem for Research, Industry and Public Health Purposes and chair of the Victorian Quantum Technology Network. When I knew, you should just do biotech. <laughs> 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 but what I like, so I first joined the life sciences sector in Victoria in my very early 20s and Amanda has been a leader in the ecosystem since I was an absolute newbie and I'm just delighted that she's agreed at quite short notice to be our first Frank and Fearless speaker. Thank you, um, Bronwyn, and, and good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. I met Bronwyn, yeah, it would be pretty close to 20 years ago. and I, We I, haven't changed it yet. No, 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 exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really terrific, actually, to be here this evening and, and actually to see everyone here in this space and to think that it's really only seems like a couple of years ago, I think it's seven years, Bronwyn, that you've been operating this business and to see it grow from two people to what it is today is just amazing. So I'd just like to congratulate Bronwyn and her colleagues, her team, who are fantastic, um, who are really responsible for us being here and, and growing the digital health sector in Victoria, which is really important. So I'm going to kick into the questions. When did you first realise you wanted to be a scientist? That's a tricky question. I, I was thinking about that the other day and, and I suppose there are three things that I can point to that uh, really me make the decision. So first of all, I remember going to the library as in 
primary school and borrowing a book on Edward Jenner. So the vaccinologist who in many respects is the founder of immunology that we know today. So I was I was always curious about science and then I always wanted a chemistry set as a kid. I never got one and so I, <laughs> I clearly needed to train my parents better. <laughs> so I took matters into my own hands pretty much. And then I suppose the third point was when I finished my BCE, I, I kind of enrolled in science but wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and took a gap year and worked in the quality control labs at Nicholas Pharmaceuticals. So, so it's no longer there, unfortunately, which you know is a real shame. And in fact, that probably triggered my interest in the industry more broadly because I had the greatest fun working in the QC lab and going down on the manufacturing floor and actually seeing how the business operates. So... So if you really enjoyed quality, quality control is yeah. a very specific thing to me. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Would you say you've got a very ordered mind? Is that No. You know? <laughs> uh, so, so structured. So structured. I, I could do it for a year. So I can do repetitive things for a year or two and then I seek another challenge. So I can do it for a bit, master it and then move on. But I, I can remember actually doing my very first essay, which happened to be on caffeine citrate for those who are interested and pharmacologically minded and I can remember it took me half a day to do that assay and uh, on my very first day and then within two weeks uh, I could do it in two hours and do about five other things in parallel so it was a great learning before going to university that actually uh, it's everything takes a lot longer than you anticipate does that resonate oh yes <laughs> and, um, and and then once you, you've learnt things and you've found the friends in the lab that can point you in the right direction, then it's so much easier the second time around. I clearly need to start another end health. Um, so um, my team have been digging into many of the other reports and interviews you've given over the years, and apparently your father was in the pharmaceutical industry. And was he your inspiration to study pharmacology? He certainly was a major contributor. He, he was a salesman for a number of different pharmaceutical companies. And I suppose the way that I would describe it, my mind was prepared for it. And he won a book as salesman of the year. And it was called In Vivo. And it was about the discovery of Keflosporins. So Keflosporins were, if you like, second or third generation antibiotics. And scientists dug around in dirt because they were actually discovered in dirt. There's a lot of microbes in dirt for those of us interested in dirt. And, uh, and it really described the transition of that discovery into a pharmaceutical product and the ups and downs. And so I suppose indirectly through that, because I would not otherwise have found that book, it triggered my interest. So yeah, Dad's got a lot to answer for. My father was a dairy farmer. And one of the things I always knew was that I wasn't going to be a dairy farmer. <laughs> They don't get holidays. <laughs> it's a fundamental job. They don't get any sleep either. No. Get up at five although in the I still get up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I call that genetics. So Amanda Cables, PhD candidate, mm. University of Melbourne. How is she the same or different to the Amanda Cables of today? 
Ah, that's uh, interesting. Um, so I, I was a real SWOT as a student. I was thinking about that. I always was in the lab at eight o'clock, uh, first in, last out, library on a Friday afternoon. I don't do any of that anymore <laughs> at all. But having said that, I, I'm similar in so far as really when I'm working on something, I like to get it right. And so whilst there are some things that I'm happy to leave at 80%. There are other things I've just got to get to 100%. And that's really important in the job that I do today because for some things, you know, it's really important that it's correct to the nth degree. So I think I look the same as I did several decades ago. In fact, someone actually said that to me the other day, which uh, I thought really just meant that they needed a pair of spectacles more than anything else. But I think if you look around at who was in these types of rooms 20 years ago, I think you've done all right. Thank you. you know, there's a few others around. The actually, I remember when I went to the first Oz Biotech after COVID. Yeah. It really honestly felt like a school reunion. Some people looked identical and other people were like, wow, they got really old. Yeah. <laughs> but your first six months postdoc was in Paris. Mm-hmm. You have said previously it was your dream job. Mm-hmm. Was it the job? Or was it Paris? <laughs> <laughs> I, I lucked out um, or lucked in probably is a better way of describing it in that I, I decided that I didn't want to do the traditional postdoc. So I was in the final throes of my PhD, got a job with a company called Servia Laboratories. And I thought, oh my God, I've got this job. I'm going to Paris. I better start writing. And so I just wrote because you did in those days, you wrote rather than had personal computers. And Paris was amazing. So, yes, I had six months in Paris, but I learnt my craft. I learnt the trade. I was six months in the headquarters of Serbia, worked on a dozen or so projects, understood clinical trials, regulatory affairs, IPs. So it was like a, a deep immersion into the industry and, uh, and I was able to bring so much back to the work that I was doing here in Australia and then to a whole range of other roles. But I've got to say, walking around Paris, which I did every weekend, was just amazing and going through all the arrondissements and experiencing the food and the culture and the shopping. Mm. Shopping is fantastic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. So moving into the kind of 90s and the noughties, the very naughty noughties, um, you spent some time at WeHi, is that Mm -hmm. correct? So time at WeHi and then made the transition into government. WeHi is, as we all know, one of our, you know, pillars of our medical research establishment. So what was it like being in WeHi? But then also what triggered that shift into public policy and, and the government? Yeah, okay. So I joined WeHi after learning. So, so at Serbia, I learned the clinical and regulatory side of the business. And then my next real job was with a company called AMRAD, which was a tech transfer organization. And WeHi was one of our member institutes. So my job really at AMRAD was business development and licensing and joint venture creation, that kind of thing. And so I went and did that at WeHi. WeHi was a member institute of AMRAD. And 
and had decided to undertake its own business development and, and licensing. So I did that for a couple of years and then this amazing opportunity came up. And so it was just a classic case of opportunity knocked. The Victorian government in 2002 was really committed to the development of the biotech sector and so I was offered the role and at first I rejected it. I thought, oh no, I don't think I can work in government. I had no idea what it was like. And anyway, I got talked into taking it. And I, and I think what really was in it for me was that it was about producing something like we've got today. And I thought, well, I've got big pharmaceutical company experience, local biotech, I understand how, well, I think I understand how academia work. And so the third leg in the stool was around public policy. So that's kind of how it happened. And so it was like going to Paris, but in Melbourne, like it was like doing a deep dive and you're suddenly immersed and you either sunk or you swam. And I like to think that I swam. Well, you're still swimming. I am still swimming. <laughs> I'm swimming. Um, it's interesting. So for those of you who don't know who AMRAD is, it's actually worth a Google because I think if you didn't AMRAD, if you didn't AMRAD reunion now, you would literally have some of the highest profile execs across life sciences across Australia all came through AMRAD. Mm-hmm. That's right. At various points in time. Correct. There, it, is, it is quite mind-blowing how many of our leading execs in companies like CSL and et cetera have all come through the AMRAD engine room. And that, I guess, leads into this whole ecosystem building thing. And so I was really fortunate because I got into my accidental job in life sciences that hasn't yet ended in 2003 and I had moved to Melbourne. So Amanda was already in the government but then – She was really involved in overseeing the Science, Technology and Innovation Initiative of the Victorian Government, which invested $620 million between 1999 and 2004, as well as made other strategic investments through to 2010. And I guess, honestly, my life sciences career probably wouldn't have existed because I started Neurosciences Victoria without that program. So that was an amazing program. And recently, when I say recently, I think it was two or three years ago, the report was released on the long-term economic impact of that program. And it's, you know, for every dollar, $4.54 of additional income, so a 4x multiplier effect into the Victorian economy. What do you think were the unique set of circumstances and the unique aspects of that program that literally put Melbourne on the map as a top five centre for health and medical research in the world. So the SDI program was in place when I arrived into government and it was initially a four-year commitment and the purpose was to build the research infrastructure. So there was the view, which was quite right, that our scientific infrastructure really hadn't kept pace with global change. And so the secret to SDI was that it had bipartisan support from both sides of government. It was focused initially on fixing the problem that we observed, which was we didn't have world-class research tools and technologies to enable first-class research, and it was focused at that, at the get-go. And if you think of some of the investments that were made, it was in the Australian synchrotron, for example, and you think, what's the purpose of a synchrotron? You would be amazed at the depth and the breadth of the usage of that facility and what it's done to attract international talent to this town. 
So we had that really clear purpose in terms of what we were seeking to achieve with the funding. And then because we had that purpose, we were able to get a series of further funds. So STI in many forms ran for 10 years and it had as its core feature four-year committed terms of $300 million, which you think about days was so much money. (laughs) (laughs) It was huge and we were the only state really to have the depth and the breadth of that commitment. And importantly, what we did was measure the outcomes of the investments that we made so that we had real data and uh, and we were able to track that data. So we had longitudinal data on what were the impacts on jobs, investment, exports, collaborations, industry engagement. So we had a whole raft of different metrics that we were monitoring and we undertook successive evaluations of that data so that we were able to tell the story because at the end of the day, you can have the best mousetrap in the world, but if you can't tell the story around your whatever it is that you do, then you're not going to really perform to your expectations. So telling the story is really important. And for those of you that are familiar with the And Health Plus metrics that we publish, so there's commercial customers, there's capital raise, there's revenue, there's jobs, there's clinical trials. Part of that, I used to have to, at Neurosciences Victoria, prepare the reports with all the outcome data that you just go to amend for approval. And there's so many things that through my career picked up in working under that program that I've used and health for exactly the same reason. We can tell a story that is centred and based in data. So we don't go, well, we think our company's the best. We go, these are the outcomes they've achieved. So it shapes the conversation in a different way. So you've now been... In the Victorian government for nearly or roughly two decades. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we're, we're I, I think this whole thing, we were both going to age ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about longevity of impact, how do you think the STI program has shaped the current innovation policy environment? Or has it? Or have we forgotten all the good things we no. learned? Or, you know, no. where are we at? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think they are very much in play today. And just to pick up on neurosciences, Victoria, so for those who are not aware, um, so this was about bringing together the neuroscience institutes within Victoria. So we had about five or six institutes. Five five when I started and eight when I left. And then I think it got a bit bigger. Yeah. So, so, So what we sought to do was to link them up such that they had scale and critical mass and could do things together that they couldn't do as individual institutes. So that philosophy of bringing people together and and finding ways to collaborate, I think, pervades today. And we just need to look at what happened during the, the pandemic around COVID. We were able, because we built a culture here in Victoria of collaboration is pretty much first. That's not to say that we're not competitive with each other. Competition is important, but when it's really needed and when there is alignment behind a bigger vision, we've got a very collaborative culture. And I think the STI initiative has really, that's one of the legacies of the STI initiative is to almost make that part of our DNA. And that's been really important for dealing in good times and in not so good times. To get a little bit political, just because I can, that 
type of funding that STI had, you know, they had 300 million big tranches and it ran for 12 Yeah, about 12 years, yeah. You know, that is something that we don't, in federal or state, in any state really, we don't see those long-term, big rolling commitments of funding anymore. Do you think that that's holding us back as a nation? Yes. Would you like to expand on that? I should. The rule of the interviewer, don't ask yes, no questions. And so I was reflecting uh, on that very point because I had I came in at a point where we had this ten to twelve years of successive funding, and then then we had a bit of a gap. And that's not to say that government didn't do anything. In fact, we did some pretty significant things, but there wasn't that type of funding available, and so. In 2020, when we were told to go home, I thought, well, what can I do with my time? What, what's the best use of my time during this period? And During this tw- six-week lockdown? Yeah, during this six weeks. And so my role was to direct traffic and make sure that you know any incoming went to health or went to our department. So I sit in the Economic Development Agency. So that was all fine and the right thing to do. But one of the last things that I did in one of my roles was to do a final evaluation of the STI initiative and it hadn't really gone anywhere. So I've had this report burning a hole in my pocket for about 12, you know, 10 10 years and I thought, well, now's the time to bring it out and to tell the story because it really presented the evidence, the data and the interpretation that supports this type of funding because it's been incredibly valuable for Victoria. So I sat down and, and started writing a report. It's only about 20 pages. You can find it on my website uh, and it's called um, Stimulating the Science and Innovation Ecosystem Creates Jobs and Investment because what do governments want? Mm. They want jobs, they want investment and they want the outcomes, so the health and, and other social outcomes. So I told a really simple story and that said, so 20 years ago we started on this 10-year journey, this is what we did and this is what we got for that, sort of the direct outcomes from that investment and then took a step back and looked at the broader picture of what's happened to Victoria and on other metrics associated with that, you know, you could associate with the impact of that investment. So, for example, you know, attraction of federal funding for research, etc. So a whole range of other things. And then how has that helped us deal with the pandemic? And so that was the simple story that needed to be told to remind government that actually if you make this kind of commitment it delivers in spades and so with a few uh, other important interactions uh, since since the release of that report we now have Breakthrough Victoria which is effectively in many respects I consider that to be the 2020 version of the next generation yeah next generation. Yeah. And so what's really interesting to me is that unfortunately our Chief Operating Officer, Damien Milling, couldn't be here, but about uh, six years ago when I was starting Ant Health, we found ourselves sitting next to each other, an MTP Connect sector competitiveness plan event at Syrah and Parkville, and somebody stood up and said, Australia's fabulous at science and rubbish at commercialisation. And I actually may have just looked at Damien and went, 2003 wants its presentation back. Because I actually don't think 
So I think the STI program for me was one of the first programs that really put big development and commercialization front and center and, and started to really focus on how do we take that basic science and translation. We now have the Medical Research Future Fund, which is unique to Australia. But what, where do you sit on Australia's ability to commercialise? Because I fundamentally don't agree with that we're not great at commercialising. We have 750 companies in our network who are actively in market and a lot of them are impacting patients. And in fact, the companies that have done our flagship programs have impacted nearly a million patients in five years. So they clearly are translating and impacting real world outcomes. Where do you see us sitting on the commercialisation translation piece now in 2023? I think we've still got work to do. Uh, I think it's been really pleasing to see an acceleration in the development of the industry and and that's, you know, at the end of the day, one of the main outcomes that that government is is wanting. I think there's still an issue within our universities in terms of letting go and basically releasing people and technology so that they can have a go and have that opportunity. So I think there's lots of nodding heads in the room, people who may be affiliated with the universities. <laughs> and if you look at Stanford or any of the you know the major you know, US universities, and I spent some time when I was at WeHigh um, at Cold Spring Harbor in New York to understand how their tech transfer office operated, and you know it was just so enabling and fit for purpose, and it wasn't you know one rule you must fit within this straitjacket, and it was embraced. Academics were welcome to come back and so it wasn't such a major decision that it tends to be here and I would like to think that the culture within universities have changed and every time I see a glimmer of hope and think oh yes we finally got there and then I hear another story and have another experience that suggests that there's further work to do. <laughs> so, um, but, but I think we've got one of the things that has changed and is important in our journey to commercialisation is to remember that we don't need to know it all and in fact that not even in the US, you know, if you go to any particular university, everyone needs to reach out for a friend or a colleague or, or someone or a mentor who has done it before because we're all creating our own journeys and all need to, you know, we've got our own set of experiences and we need to reach out to others because guess what? There's always something that we don't know and that's been a key learning actually from my PhD supervisor who I can distinctly remember saying, Amanda, like he thought I was going to do full-time research, which you know, he, he was completely <laughs> wrong. um, But what he said to me was that you're going to be an expert in one particular area, which by definition means that you're not in another and therefore you're always going to need to reach out to others who know more about something than you do. And that's, I think, really useful in everything that we do, but particularly in commercialisation because we were talking earlier, there are so many things that can go wrong and so many mistakes that you don't need to make. Mm. So if you talk and and if you have that external focus and think just because I don't know something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, And so that's... We have a a cultural, like a leadership principle at Anhill, which is know what you don't know but then be the conduit to someone that does know. Yeah. yeah. Right. So just going back to 2003, those halcyon days, there weren't that many women at those events. Mm. 
That's correct. I think there's probably five of us. <laughs> um, you know, so as a female leader who's had a really high-profile career in government but also in a sector lovely within life sciences, which has been in Australia in many ways still remains quite male-dominated, what things can you say to our young female leaders to help them navigate these landscapes and what kind of words of wisdom do you have for succeeding in science as a female leader? So first of all, to say, don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. So that's the, the, the first thing. And then I I must admit, when I was at university, it wasn't that obvious to me. Perhaps uh, I was fortunate to... You were in the library at five. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's true. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> I was never, ever at the library at five o'clock on a Friday. And so the other thing that I found really, and in fact my husband taught me to do this, and, and I keep practicing it. I haven't mastered it yet, but I, it, it always comes to me at certain times and that is pattern recognition of who you're speaking to and so I think you know we've all found people that we can relate to and it doesn't matter whether they're male or female and then there are some people who you really struggle with and doesn't really matter too much what you try and do and it tends to for females that tends to be more often males and I had one extreme example about 10 or 12 years ago where I went home and I said to my husband I said oh you know I really like this guy we really get on but he, you know you've got a nanosecond uh, to, to have a conversation with him if you can't get your point across in a nanosecond you know he's, he's gone he's gone you know yeah. and so I had to change my style, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't personal to me or to female gender. It was just how he communicated with, with the world, and so I just you know would change my style, and it was subject matter. This is the concern. This is the verb. You know, and and you just had this staccato style. So, and I think that's really useful because we're put in positions where we're not in control of who we need to influence or who we need to engage with. And if we can think about, well, what's going on with the other person? How are they communicating? If I adapt my style don't change your style but adapt your style so that you're you're better meeting the preference uh, of the other person then you, you'll find that the the passage to a good relationship is a lot easier so that's uh, the way that I particularly focus with everyone but also particularly as a female operating in a male environment although it's fair to say that the Victorian public sector is pretty much 50-50. Yeah. Uh, we've got a leadership, I was thinking about that the other day, the leadership is a little bit on the male orientation side at the moment, but that will change and there is a firm commitment mm -hmm. and, and broadly speaking, it's really the best idea that wins, but communication, it comes back to communication again, is so important in terms of getting your message across and achieving what it is that you're seeking to achieve. So you are Victoria's Chief Scientist. That's a big title. What does the day job look like? What does the day job look like? <laughs> Diverse. <laughs> so there is no, you know, you don't go in and thank goodness. People uh, don't you know, lie in the hallway. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> 
So, uh, so I've got a variety of different things that I'm, I'm seeking to, to achieve. And so the way that I describe the role in a general term is around advocating for, for science, technology, engineering and maths because that's the passport to a great career, whatever career you choose to take, and, uh, and advocate for both male and female because we all need to have it and we know the jobs of the future are going to require that. So, so that's been a core plank of what I do. Secondly, to engage industry and academia so that, you know, the thing that's yet to be solved is getting a better engagement there. So I work on a number of different projects ranging from space technologies to quantum tech technologies to mRNA. Uh, I can talk about mRNA a bit later if you like. And so probably that's the space where I spend a lot of my time. And then the third area is around scanning the horizon for new technologies and so quantum in particular is an area that I've been spending a lot of time seeking to, again, have a working knowledge. I'm not ever going to be a domain expert in that area, but bringing together people who have more knowledge than I do and, and to understand how and what we should be doing in Victoria so that when quantum technologies really come in earnest, we're prepared for that and we've got an understanding of what it is that we should be doing. I had coffee with Doug Hilton, the going director of WeHi, incoming CEO of CSIRO. Luckily, that was in the diary before he became really famous. And the other day, and he said, you know, if we'd done mRNA 20 years ago, everyone thought it would have thought we were crazy, but two years ago, we would have been absolute legends. Yeah. And it's about how do you work out those things that you need to invest in now, and everyone's like, why are you doing that? But in 20 years' time, that makes you the rock star of the global scientific community, right? So how do you identify those yeah. things? So what is the thing that's going to make us the rock star of the scientific community? No. <laughs> mRNA. <laughs> so, so, so it's a really great story of, of how we did. So mRNA Victoria has just been around for two years, two and a bit years. We're only in a position to be able to do it because we've invested in health and medical research and industry for the preceding 20 years. So we're able to actually have an ecosystem here that has attracted Moderna. And if you go down to Monash, the corner of Wellington Road and Blackburn Road, you'll see a building going up there extremely quickly. So that is going to produce commercial scale respiratory vaccines. And so we've attracted Moderna. We're also attracting BioNTech. So our equivalent international economic development agencies are going how did that happen? What happened in Victoria? What happened in Melbourne? You know, so we've got, we will have two of the preeminent mRNA companies here. And that is just what, what convinced them, what, in, what gets them excited about being here is that we've got an ecosystem that is connected is at world scale and can deliver on the promise that they see in the use of mRNA both for infectious diseases but cancer. So all of the mRNA companies really started with personalised medicines for cancer as their primary use case. And one of the investments that we've done in Parkville with the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre was to facilitate the relocation of the Peter Mac to Parkville. And so that has been transformative. The whole Parkville precinct is really 
just exceeding, I don't know what the figure is, five times, ten times the value of our investment through the research that's being undertaken there, the attraction of international players who see that as, you know, it really is the Boston of the mm. Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Uh, we're going to wrap up in a sec, but this is the frank and fearless event, so I'm going to give you the floor to say something that's completely frank and completely fearless oh, to close the night out. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's um, that's a Amanda's like this is much more a Brahmin thing, right? Like the unkilted thing, much more Brahmin than Amanda. So what's um, I I can only say I I really saw I mentioned the hesitation that I had coming into the public sector, and um, I've just been blown away by the by the capability in the sector, and so like that is just. Completely frank, it is a great career, it's a great opportunity. Um, that's maybe not that fearless, but you do need. You know, the politically environment in Australia is pretty messy at the moment, so yeah, I think going into government yeah. feels a bit fearless. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything terribly controversial, but um, it, it's just having the ability to directly answer questions like I'm avoiding answering your question right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But you're being you're fearlessly avoiding my question. I feel so fearlessly avoiding <laughs> Can everyone join me with thanking Dr. Amanda Cable? <laughs>